0: to rule and reign to reflect your nature to the world as well as to intercede in a broken world and bring them to the throne of grace father we we praise you this morning for your grace not grace to bar what is not bliss nor flight from all distress but this, the grace that orders our trouble and pain and then in the darkness is there to sustain. Father, I pray that this morning you would sustain us by your word, that we would eat it, chew on it, digest it, be nourished and strengthened by it, to be strong and courageous for the sake of your name and the good of this church. And we ask that in Jesus' name, amen. I would assume that anyone living in the last few years is quite familiar with, if not maybe just heard of the term cancel culture. Has anyone heard of that term before? A few of you hear a few chuckles, which is good because that means you know a little bit of what I'm talking about. In the off chance you don't know what I'm talking about, cancel culture is a term that refers to taking away support from an individual, their fame, their popularity, uh, their career, because they have said or done something that is determined as unacceptable. So you'll get this a lot. Most of the time, people who are canceled are those who are public figures, and they're canceled because they hold influence over a huge audience. And what they have said or what they have done has allegedly caused a great amount of harm to either a person or a group of people or a community. Now, it's kind of interesting when you look at that because it's all across the board what people get canceled for. I mean, they could be canceled for a political stance or a personal belief. They can be canceled because of a uh, a real bold declaration on social media or just a careless comment. They can be canceled because of a political stance. They could be canceled because of something insignificant or something significant. They could be canceled because uh, something they have said or the way that people view them or how they've treated other people. But there are people getting canceled all over the place. Maybe you have heard a few people who have been recently. Um, maybe the name is Johnny Depp, who is an actor, might come to mind, or Ellen DeGeneres, who was a talk show host, or uh, John Gibson, who is the CEO of Tripwire, which is a gaming platform, or J.K. Rowling, who authored uh, the Harry Potter series. Any of these names ringing a bell? Maybe like Mike Lindell, the My Pillow guy. He got canceled. Uh, Chris Harrison, the host of The Bachelor, Bachelorette. Nobody's into those shows. He got canceled. Uh, Matt Damon, he's canceled. I mean, all these people, they are getting canceled left and right. And it's kind of interesting to look at how they're being canceled. Because most of the time, the people that are canceling them are guilty of doing the same things. They have the same issues. They are just as guilty of being intolerant, holding very close-minded political beliefs or personal beliefs or philosophies. They are just as guilty as the people they are canceling. But that's often the case because it is easier to see guilt or to find guilt in someone else than to see that we might be guilty of doing the same things, if not worse. Now, it's really interesting because this is happening all over the place. In fact, uh, Rowan Atkinson, you might know him as Mr. Bean, he commented that cancel culture is very much like a medieval mob that is walking around looking for someone to burn. It kind of feels how it is. People are so quick to judge and condemn people, maybe over an isolated instance. There's just no grace. But this is not just a phenomenon of the 21st century. It has been going around for thousands of years. From the beginning of time, people have all sought to find a way to cancel people that they may have disagreed with or saw as a threat. That's actually precisely what is taking place around the trial and the conviction and the crucifixion of Jesus. The Jewish leaders, they were seeing Jesus and they were trying to take away his support. Support for his his popularity, his fame, his ministry because what he was doing, what he was saying, who he was claiming to be was drawing all the people away. In fact, they thought that this was such a bad thing because it was taking away Their power, their influence, their authority. So they are trying to find a way to cancel Jesus, but they're going to do it in the most public and violent way they can imagine. Crucifixion at the hands of the Romans. But what they didn't see is that what was a symbol of shame became a beacon of hope for all. As Jesus hung there on the cross, he shared, he spoke things, words that both solidified and personified the salvation that we all so desperately need. We are right now in the middle of a series or the beginning stages of a series called The Last Words of Jesus. And we are looking at his final comments that he made on the cross because the words of Jesus, this man, are so important They're life-changing. In fact, they are eternity-shaping. Last week, Pastor Kyle started us off talking about forgiveness, and he showed us the significance of Jesus' phrase when he said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. If you didn't have a chance to to be here for that message, I would encourage you to go back to our website, find it, watch it, or listen to it. It will be so instrumental in you understanding what forgiveness is between us and God looks like why it's important and how that changes the way that we can treat and forgive other people. Today, we're gonna to take a look at Jesus' second statement on the cross. And we're gonna find an enormous significance in the words that he is saying to us there. So if you have a Bible, please turn to Luke chapter 23, and we're gonna read verses 32 all the way down to verse 43. Luke chapter 23, verses 32 43. I'll give you a second just to find your way there. You can also find it on your phone. It's pretty easy to look that up too. If you have my Bibles, on page 884. This is what Luke says. Verse 32 of chapter 23. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull... And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Man, those are great words. But I can see what's going on. I hope that you can see it too in the middle of this passage. Are you seeing the frenzy that the mob is in as Jesus is being crucified along with these other true criminals? The mob is gathered around and they're hearing everyone taunting and this mockery and hatred that's spewing out of their mouths. The insults that are being thrown at Christ. It is a massive scene. Just loudness. People mocking and abusing Jesus. Everyone was doing it. He was getting it from every angle. But here's the thing, just like in cancel culture today, a lot of people don't see the guilt that they have because they're so busy throwing shade on other people. In the same sense, we can take a look at this scene and we can fail to see ourselves in that scene. We fail to see that we would actually be with that crowd, mocking and throwing insults At Jesus. It's really hard for us because we would rather say we're on the outside looking at just just this happening. Or we might be one of Jesus' disciples. But they're all gone, by the way. Don't forget about that. We find ourselves in this scene with the crowd mocking Jesus. But let me take it just a step further. It's hard for us to see ourselves in that crowd mocking Jesus. Throwing insults at him what's even harder and more difficult for us to do is to see ourselves as the thief on the cross, paying for our crimes there with Jesus. That's hard for us to do, to imagine that we would be there as a, as a thief, as a criminal, but as, a, as hard as it may be for me to say, and especially hard to hear, The words of this passage, this moment, these last words of Jesus are so important for us. And they are this the big idea. If we don't see ourselves as a thief on the cross, we won't find ourselves in heaven. Those are big words. That is a bold statement. If we don't see ourselves, As a thief on the cross, we won't find ourselves in heaven. Wait, what? Me, a condemned criminal? I mean, we might find ourselves saying that, right? Like, I am nowhere close to those guys. I am not a condemned criminal. And in most cases, you'd be right because these guys were bad dudes. They were very, very shady figures. In fact, they are referred to in the Bible as malefactors, as evildoers, as robbers, thieves. These were really bad people. In fact, these were the most degenerate two individuals in the entire scene. In fact, they are so bad that they are using their final words, their final strength to hurl insults In mockery at Christ. The word that is back here. For thieves. Is the same word that John uses to describe Barabbas. Who was the murderer and the thief. That was released instead of Jesus. In fact. It may be that these three were in the same gang together. They were tried and convicted. And sentenced to die together. Until Jesus took Barabbas' place. But here we have these criminals. Hanging on the cross. These Terrible people, these bad-to-the-bone degenerates are hanging there on the cross dying for their own crimes. Now, I may not know all of your backgrounds. I don't know your professions. But my guess is that at least the majority of us here are probably not career criminals. Although people back in California still think that the Amish Mafia is still a real thing. (laughs) But... What we don't see, though, is that whether we are a career criminal or a career churchgoer, the status is still the same. There's no distinction here. You see, the thief on the cross shows us two very important things. It shows us first that all of our evil is inconsequential. Now we might look at this scene and we might think through this a little bit more difficultly because how, how do we respond to somebody who is evil receiving grace? When we look at a story like this and think of someone who was a lifetime criminal coming to faith in Christ, does it hit you hard at all? I mean... Let me put it into a more recent example. Maybe not super recent, but one that might be in our lifetime. I don't know if you've heard of Jeffrey Dahmer, but if you don't know who Jeffrey Dahmer is, he was a man who was tried and convicted of murdering 17 young men, among other horrific crimes. He was sentenced and put on death row. And while he was on death row, a pastor named Roy Ratcliffe spent time with Jeffrey Dahmer. Week after week, he kept talking with him and sharing Christ with him. And over time, believe it or not, Roy was able to bring Jeffrey Dahmer to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. He said it took weeks for Jeffrey to understand how God's grace could apply to him how God could save someone like him who had done such evil in this world. It took him a long time to understand that, but then when he finally understood that accepting Christ as a savior made him right with God no matter what he had done, it left his fears away. I'm not going to lie. When I hear a story like that, it kind of shakes me a little bit. In fact, Someone even in Roy's own congregation left his church and said, if Jeffrey Dahmer is going to be in heaven, I don't want to be there. See, sometimes we can look at a scene and think, look at how evil that person is. Look at how bad they are. They don't deserve God's grace. I remember feeling the same thing. When I was a kid, my dad went and ministered into jails in our community. And he and his ministry partner went and ministered to a man named Dennis Webb. And when I read about the crimes he had committed, it literally made my stomach turn. But they were there with him in the cell talking about how God's grace could extend to him. Sometimes that, that shakes us a little bit. Like, wait, you mean every crime that I have done, every evil that I could possibly have done doesn't matter in the scheme of God's grace in salvation? And I would say yes, because that's, that's what's being presented to us here. This thief that is on the cross who is desperate for salvation is hearing that Jesus can save even him. But maybe you're on the flip side and you think, okay, I get that. I think that Jesus is, is good and I think that he saves people, but maybe he just saves those who will Who are really bad, those who really need to be saved. But someone like me, I mean, I don't know if I really need that much grace. On the flip side, the thief on the cross not only shows us that all of our evil is inconsequential, but all of our goodness is inadequate. All of our goodness is inadequate. We can play the comparison game with the thief on the cross and with other people too, right? I mean, we could say, well, (laughs) at least I'm not as bad as so-and-so or I'm not as bad as that guy or or that lady. I don't do things as bad as they do. I'm actually not that bad of a person. I'm I'm essentially a good person, right? We can start to think that we are better than others, but we need to understand that we have the same depravity within us that was in the thief on the cross, The same heart that is bent on evil and wickedness is within us. You may not think so. You may not feel so. You may not believe so. But it is so. The prophet Jeremiah in his letter, chapter 17, verse 9, Jeremiah says, The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? That's all of our hearts. That applies to each and every one of us. All of our hearts from nature, from birth, have a bent towards hostility with God. In fact, Paul picks up on this in Romans. He says, for the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's laws and it never will. And then in another passage, Paul goes on to say this, for there's no difference for all of sinned. And come short of the glory of God. It's not until we realize that we are in a really bad shape that we can finally reach out in faith and hope for a Savior. But this is often where we get really hung up, I think, because we start to struggle. This is what usually happens when people come to a conclusion that, you know, things are not really good inside. I, I feel spiritually empty. I feel like there's a a separation between me and God. I need to do something about this. But what often becomes the case is that instead of going to Christ, we do something else. Luke, earlier on, shared a story of the prodigal son who got his inheritance from his dad. Left, went to a faraway country and squandered everything he had in parties and high living. And when he had spent it all and had nothing left, what did he do? Did he go back to his dad right away? No, he went and he hired himself to someone in that country to feed his pigs. In other words, he went to work. Instead of running back to his dad who loved him, he went to work. He felt he was missing something. He felt he was broken, that he had nothing left. So what did he do? He went to work. Like the woman we talked about a few weeks ago who had this condition, this medical condition. She had spent all of her money, went to doctor after doctor after doctor before she finally went to the great physician. Our problem is... In life is that when we feel we have a spiritual need, when we feel something is missing, instead of going to the one who could help us, we go to things that we think will help us. We try one thing after another. After another, we go to work and try to work ourselves into approval and acceptance with God. And we are left lacking. In fact, in both of those stories, they are worse off than before. And that's usually the case with us. We have to come to this conclusion that we are really in bad shape. That we are worse off than we really think. Either with our our evil that we have done in the past is weighting us down with guilt or our goodness. We think that we're good enough to earn God's favor. Both of those are, are really difficult positions. And it isn't until we realize that neither one of those will work to save us that we can finally reach out in hope and faith. I remember back, uh, I went and visited my parents who were missionaries in Taiwan, and we took a trip from the northern part of the island down to the southern part of the island, and it was so beautiful. We were vacationing for a few days down there, and one of those days we went to this beautiful beach, soft sand, it was warm outside, makes me wish I was there now for a moment or two. We're sitting at the beach and having a blast, and I would go into the water, come back out, my mom decides to go in, and she goes for a swim, and I'm watching my mom swim in the ocean, And I think, wow, she's really good at swimming. And then like some time goes by and I say, wow, she's really good at swimming and has incredible endurance. And she keeps on swimming and she's just going back and forth. I'm thinking, man, how long is she going to stay out there? She is swimming for a long time. But finally, she picks her hand up and starts waving. And I realize my mom is stuck. She is in trouble out there. So I threw everything off and I booked it out into the water and I swam out to try to get to her. And when we I finally got to her, I started to try to pull her back to shore. And I wasn't getting anywhere. We were both just stuck in that same spot and we couldn't move. We couldn't get closer to the shore. In fact, we were moving further out to sea. I had no idea what to do. Here we were, both of us trapped in this ocean, no way of getting back to shore. And both of us finally decided it's time for us to put up both of our hands and we we, uh, screamed for the lifeguard. The lifeguard comes out with his, his surfboard, grabs us, and he pulls us into shore through a bunch of rocks, which is not the place I would have gone. What I didn't realize is that we were in this undercurrent of a river that was sweeping us out to sea. And in order for us to get out, he had to take us through the rocks to safety. This story is exactly how I I feel is what's taking place in this story. Is that all of us are in this undercurrent of sin and is sweeping us further away from a relationship with God. And it isn't until we realize that we are lost and we have no hope that we finally reach out our hand and say, I need some help. And that's when Jesus comes. And that's where the thief was. He reached out in this massive plea saying, Jesus, help. Jesus, help. Somewhere along the way, he turned from taunting Jesus to trusting Jesus. That is a big shift. Because if you remember, right at the beginning of the scene, both of the thieves were mocking and hurling insults at Jesus. Jesus. So they're both doing it. But somewhere along the line, this one thief has a change of heart. He's starting to hear something that's being said. And he's changing. Maybe he hears him say, he saved others. Let let him save himself. Then he hears his other friend say, he saved others. Jesus, you saved others. Save yourself and us. And maybe he's joining in saying, yeah, Jesus, you saved others wait, wait, you saved others? You saved others? Other people were healed? Maybe, maybe there's hope for me. And so he, in one moment, turns everything. He goes completely counter cancel culture and starts trusting Jesus. He cuts himself off from that crowd saying, this is an innocent man. We are guilty. We deserve what we are getting. That's exactly what he's saying. We deserve the punishment that we are getting. This man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. His final desperate end of the rope plea for a mercy that he didn't deserve. It echoes what we read earlier in Luke or we find earlier in Luke with the tax collector who was so burdened down by his sin couldn't even raise his head and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. In both cases, the thief and the tax collector, they realized that if they were at all to be saved, it had to be on the merits of someone else. And they cried out and both of them received eternal life in salvation because of Jesus. And that is the key to the plea. See, salvation can only come when we fully recognize who Jesus is. This thief, he didn't have a full understanding of who Jesus was. But what he did know is what he saw. He saw that he was being led like a lamb to the slaughter, didn't say anything. He was silent before the people that nailed his hands and feet to the cross. He was silent as people hurled insults at him. He saw the sign on the cross that said, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. He heard people describing what Jesus had done. They were doing it as a mockery. But this thief was thinking, wow, is this the truth about Jesus? Things like, you raised Lazarus from the dead. Raise yourself off the cross. Hey, you delivered people from demons. Deliver yourself from the Romans. Hey, you healed those who had wounds and diseases. Heal yourself. He's hearing all of these things. Then he hears, you say you're the Christ, the chosen one, the Messiah. If you are the son of God, let God save you now. So this thief is hearing all of these words and thinking, if this is really this guy, he's my only hope. That's all he had. We have today so much more because of what the Bible tells us about Jesus. We know that Jesus is God in the flesh. We know that he is 100% man, and 100% God. We know that he has the power over sin and death and disease. And he displayed that power with thousands of witnesses. He is completely and utterly sinless. That he died on the cross not just to forgive our sins, but to rule over our lives. We know so much more about Jesus now. This thief relied fully on who he knew Jesus was who he believed him to be. And that led him to abandon all he had done and all he was. He realized it's not enough. So he abandoned who he was and what he had done. See, this thief hadn't done nothing good before he came to Christ. And he did nothing good after he came to Christ. There was nothing good in him before or after. I want to emphasize this because a lot of times this is what we think. We think that we have to better ourselves to make ourselves acceptable to God. If I could just clean myself up, if I just go to church enough times, I'll be okay. Clean myself up, then God will accept me. That's one fallacy. The other one is that if God does receive me as his child, I have to keep doing good things in order for him to keep me. Otherwise, everything will just fall through. Both of those are wrong, and the thief shows us this because he didn't do anything good to earn God's approval. He was a lifetime criminal. There's nothing he could do. And once he trusted in Christ, what was he going to do? How was he going to serve anyone? He's nailed to a cross. See, he's showing us that salvation is not based on anything we have done or do. It's all because of what Christ has done. So our only hope is to trust Christ To trust Jesus. For this thief to reach out and ask Jesus for help. It's a huge task. It's a big, enormous ask. He was literally taking his entire eternal destiny and putting it in the hands of one who was bleeding his life away right in front of him. This Jesus, the one who's supposed to save him, is dying next to him. He's encompassed in agony and death And this is where he's putting his trust. That's a big act of faith. I would think that I'm looking at this guy who claims to be the Messiah and he's dying. He can't preserve his own life. I would think that that would contradict not help my belief. That it would hinder not help my belief. But what he saw and believed of Jesus Was the hope for him for salvation. Might be the same thing for us today. It might be hard to believe that somebody who lived 2,000 years ago, that we've never seen, never heard, and have only read about in a book that was written thousands of years ago and has claimed to be without error. And we are placing our eternal destiny in that. Someone we don't know, have never seen, never heard. It takes a large amount of faith for us to rely on someone else. But it is only when we let go of our shortcoming sins and failures as well as our self-righteousness, our good deeds, and our finest efforts that we can find and receive the promise that Jesus gives, eternal life. And that's exactly what he gives, eternal life. The promise that we get because of the cross, it gives us with paradise So in full faith, this thief, he reaches out and says, Jesus, remember me when you go into your kingdom. Now whether that meant when Jesus leaves this earth and goes immediately into his kingdom or looking into the future of when Jesus comes back to reign as king, the point is still the same. That this thief believed that death was not the end, that life begins after death and that Jesus was going to be there. And he was asking Jesus to remember him in that moment. This simple request by a dying thief was met with the confident and amazing answer of Jesus. Today, not tomorrow, not sometime in the future, not when I come back as king. But today, you will be with me in paradise. The word paradise that he's using here is an old Persian word. It means park or garden. But it became used to describe a place of blessedness, of delight and happiness and joy. In fact, some commentators pointed out that back when the Persians were ruling, that if someone had done something especially great, the king would bestow on them a great honor and call them a companion of the garden. And they would become a companion to walk with the king through the garden. So this imagery is saying that Jesus is looking at this thief and saying, today you are going to be my companion in the garden of paradise. Jesus' last companion on earth will be his first companion in heaven and they will walk in paradise. What's really cool is that this word in the Greek Old Testament called the Septuagint was used to refer to Eden, the garden of Eden. So in in other words, Jesus is saying, is saying you're going to be back with me in this place that is going to restore what was lost at the beginning a place of tranquility and rest no more sorrow sin or suffering no more violence and wars no more hurricanes blizzards or heat waves joy unmixed with Christ it's going to be incredible but here's the thing it's so much more than just paradise Jesus didn't say today, you're going to be with me in paradise alone. See, when a person who realizes that they have no hope except for Christ, and they turn to him, then Christ becomes the object of their joy and gratitude. In other words, heaven is not the prize. Jesus is the prize. If Jesus had just said to the thief, Today you'll be in paradise, that would have been enough for the thief. He would have been so full of joy. But that would not have been expressive of exactly what's taking place here. See, it's not just that we as believers want heaven because it's going to be free from sorrow and suffering. That's great. It's not that heaven is going to be a place where we might be able to see our our loved ones again who have died in faith. That's also great. It's not that heaven is going to be a place that's beautiful with streets of gold and pearly gates and walls of jasper. All those are great. But if Jesus is not there, it's worthless. The heart of the believer realizes that it's only because of what Jesus has done that I am there. Like the psalmist says, who do I have in heaven but you and who do I desire on earth? except for you. The most amazing thing is that that's Jesus' desire too, that he wants us to be there with him. The heaven will not be heaven in the highest sense for Jesus unless the people that he has saved, he has redeemed, are there with him too. See, it was not just enough to say to the thief, today you'll be in paradise, but today you'll be with me, a person that I have bought and paid for by my own blood. You're going to be there with me. Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, he said, I desire to depart and to be with Christ. And it was such a big thing for him that he said, because that is, I don't even know how to say it. He just described all the the descriptors, put them all together. So that's very much more better for me to be with Christ. Then he said, to be absent from the body Is to be free or delivered from sorrow and suffering? No. Absent from the body to be taken up to glory? No. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. Present with Jesus. Even when Jesus is comforting his own disciples just before all this took place, he is in the garden or he's talking to them and he's saying, hey, listen, there's plenty of room in my father's house. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? But then he says, I'm going to come again. But he says, I'm going to come again. But what does he say next? To take you to my father's house? No. To take you to the place that I prepared for you? No. He says, I come again. I'm coming to get you. Why? So that you will be together with me forever. The whole idea is for us to be with Jesus. It's not just about heaven. It is about Being with Jesus. See, the the salvation of the dying thief is such an incredible story because it shows us there is hope for anyone and everyone. The dying thief had no hope except for Christ. Just like many people today who are maybe caught up in the same thing. Overwhelmed by sorrow. Overwhelmed by sin. And they have come to Christ and they have found in him hope. Nobody is too far gone. And nobody is good enough for Jesus. All of us are like the thief on the cross, needing his grace. One last thing before I move on to something else. Some people decide that they wait, they will wait till they get to the end of their life to trust Christ, like the thief on the cross. They think, I'll just wait till, till then. But there's no guarantee that you'll make it to your deathbed. There's no guarantee that you will live long enough to have that moment like this thief did. It would be foolish for us to wait until that moment to trust Christ and reach out for him. But there's also hope there too, that even if you are in your deathbed, it's still not too late. I love how a Puritan once said this. There is one such case like this recorded so that no one need despair, spare, but only one in scripture that none might presume. Let me close with this. In the movie Saving Private Ryan, the story tells, uh, or the movie tells the story of a company of soldiers who were sent on a mission to go rescue another soldier named uh, James Ryan. Uh, all of his brothers had been killed in World War II, and the government wanted to bring him home so that his family wouldn't be deprived of all of their sons. Along the way, this company of soldiers, many of them lost their lives on this mission. And even at the end, the leader of that company, Captain Miller, he lost his life saving Private Ryan. And his dying words were this to Ryan, earn this, earn this. The movie closes out with Ryan Older now, returning to the grave of Captain Miller in Normandy. And these are his words that he says. Every day I think about what you said to me that day on the bridge. I tried to live my life the best that I could. I hope that was enough. I hope that at least in your eyes, I've earned what all of you have done for me. Too many people in life look at it like this. Jesus died? Yes, Jesus, I I hope that I've lived my life well enough for you. I hope that I've earned the sacrifice that you gave for me. I hope that it was enough. I hope I earned this. And Jesus says, you can't earn anything. It is all by grace. Listen, it doesn't matter if you were the head of the PTA, volunteered thousands of hours and donated three gallons of blood. All of that Doesn't matter in regard to your salvation. Only Jesus' death and resurrection in your place matters. And if you'll leave all those accomplishments on the floor at the foot of the cross and trust in Christ alone, He says, There's a place in heaven with me. Doesn't matter if you were born in the church, went to Sunday school every single week. You said a prayer, got baptized, you joined the church, you volunteered, you served in kids ministry, you went on mission trips, you even went to the rescue mission. All of that doesn't matter in regard to your salvation. Only Jesus' death and resurrection in your place matters. And if you will lay all of those false means of hope at the foot of the cross and trust in Christ alone, Jesus says, I have a place for you with me. In heaven, It doesn't matter if you have lived a life of immorality, if you have cheated, stole, and took advantage of people, if you're a serial liar or a serial killer. It doesn't matter in regard to your salvation. Only what Jesus did on the cross and rising for you matters. It doesn't matter what you have done or how you have fallen short. Jesus loves you and he stood in the courtroom of God's justice and he won life for you, eternal life. But he says, you must just trust in me. See, when all is stripped away, when all is gone, when all of our accomplishments and all of our sin is gone, is just Christ. Is just Christ. Christ alone. Salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Jesus, thank you for your grace for us. Thank you for the joy that you give to us and that we can be forgiven regardless of how good we are or how bad we think we are. Thank you for the the incredible gift of salvation, knowing that it is not based on what we earn, but based on who you are and what you've done for us. Thank you for saving us. And God, I pray that if there are any that are here today that have been trusting in anything else except for you, that they would turn and trust you today and find hope for their soul and eternal life with you forever thank you for your love for us, your grace, and your salvation. Amen.